It's good morning. It's good to see everyone. Um, if you'll turn your Bibles to 1 Peter, we'll continue our study in this book. One thing I would encourage you to do during the week is to read through this uh, short letter. I think it will help you to uh, see the bigger picture. We're taking just sections each week, but uh, to see the big picture of what's being talked about and what Peter is saying, uh, that'd be helpful. Just, uh, you know, get so just the details that you see the big picture and, and, and see what's going on and, and where he's headed with this letter. It's a, uh, that won't take that long and it's something I think that would be very beneficial and edifying to you to do. First Peter chapter one, we come today to verses 17 through 21. Let me read these to you. Beginning in verse 17 of First Peter chapter one. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Two things and that stand out in this, as you noted from me reading it to you, would have been that Jesus was slain. You see that, the redemption is talked about in verses 18 through 21. And then in verse 17, we are to conduct ourselves in the fear of God. That's what it refers to in the second half of verse 17. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay here on earth, during your sojourn, those years that God has given you on this earth. Conduct yourselves in fear. I want to get our minds around this just for a moment. Get our minds around what it means to fear God. I think people get confused about that sometimes, fearing God. Fear is a strong human emotion. You know that. We live in a culture of fear. A lot of people are fearful in our world right now. It's a very controlling emotion, as you've seen. People can be paralyzed by it. And uh, whether it's because of Ukraine, because of its wars and rumors of wars, because of all the earthquakes, because of all the birth pangs of the days in which we're living, because of climate, because of terrorism, because of weather, uh, just the unrest in our world, the global pandemic create much fear in people. Strong, strong emotion, strong control over people. That's what fear does. As believers, we're told uh, not to fear. Fear not. We have to constantly be reminded of that. Fear not. Um, see that in several places in the scripture, but there is a paradox. Fear is a paradox because it appears many times, and many times it's spoken negatively, do not fear. And then other times it's spoken positively, like we're seeing there in verse 17, we are to fear God. It's a central theme of Scripture. It's one that's not talked about much, but it is a central theme of Scripture. Fear of the Lord, to fear God. It's a misunderstood, and I think Peter gives us, a help us get a balanced perspective of it here. But keep in mind, he's talking to believers. He's talking to believers when he says this, to fear God during your stay here on this earth. 
Unbelievers, in another sense of the word fear, have a lot to be fearful of. Unbelievers should be afraid. This is your best life now to the unbeliever, I would say, but not to us as believers. And as an unbeliever, you would have a lot to fear, and you should be fearful. But to us as believers, that's not what it's talking about. To us as believers, it's not about cowering. It's not about running and being afraid of God. That's not what this means. It's not being afraid that if I step out of line, he's just going to whack me over the head with something. That's not the idea of this word at all. It has more to do with revering him. It has more to do with standing in awe of him in light of who he is and what he has done. That's the idea of the word fear, respect, awe. And Peter surrounds this command in verse 17 with other reminders about who God is and what he has done, kind of giving us some motivations. And this is kind of how Peter does it, gives these indicatives, gives these statements that would feed us to to be those who fear God, believers who fear God. He gives some motivations, and he started last time we saw that God is holy Uh, The holiness of God. The word I told you last week, it means to be set apart. It means to be separated from the rest. It means to be different, transcendent. He's different from us. That's what it means when we say God is holy. And that should motivate us to fear God. Because we're not. We're not. We are to be holy as he is holy. The great reality is he's done two things in that with the issue of holiness, and one is that he has declared us holy in Christ. He's clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. At salvation, that's what he does to us positionally. The reason he can call you a saint is because he has positionally declared you holy in Christ and clothed you with his righteousness. But we're talking here in Peter about you being holy in your behavior. We're talking about the practical side of that, that we are to be holy. And to be holy is to be in awe and in fear of God because God is holy and we recognize that we are not. R.C. Sproul in his book on the holiness of God brings out a really good point that's very dangerous for preachers to teach on the subject of holiness because you're talking about a very high teaching when you talk about holiness. And quite frankly, when I as a pastor speak on that topic, I feel very disconnected from what I'm saying. I want you to know that. It's very easy for you to sit there and think, oh, wow, he must be really holy. He's saying all that stuff. Let me just say to you that I feel very detached sometimes from what I'm saying. These words are above me. Holiness is, is, is something that I certainly desire. I think the fact that I'm so unholy is what causes me to crave it so much. But the point is that it's It means other. It means different from us. We call this a holy Bible. Bibios is the word for book. It's a holy book. It's not that this book in itself is holy. It just means this book is different. This book is different from all the other books. That's why we call it the holy Bible. I don't worship it because it's holy, but I recognize it's different than other books. We call it holy matrimony 
because, not because the people are perfect who are involved in it, because, but because it's something that's decreed by God, it's something that's sanctioned by God, it's something that's designed by God, and it's different from all other relationships. That's what the word holy means. Transcendent, different. We treat things differently when they, we put that word holy in front of them because they're set apart. They're for special. There's something special about them. That's what we mean when we say God is holy. He's different from us. He's a holy God. And he is to be worshipped. And he should call, that should cause us to say, as Isaiah said, when he came into that temple and the, they were declaring holy, 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 and he, he was just undone by the experience. He was totally undone by the holiness of God. And, and he was felt so unworthy. And he, his, his dirty mouth was revealed in that experience. Woe is me, he said. That should be the words of every Christian when they think about the holiness of God because when God is the standard, if I make you the standard, I can do okay sometimes, and sometimes I can't, but sometimes I can. If you make me the standard, you can do the same thing. But if I make God the standard, woe is me. Woe is me. I fear God because of that. I respect God. I'm in awe of God because of that. Because he is holy. You see the word in, used in, um, in another way it's, it's supported in this, and motivated, mo- or motivated in this is when we think of God as our father. We see that in verse 18. And he, he's a judge. We think of God in, those senses, in that sense as well, then we're accountable to him. And then also we have fear of God, respect and awe of God because we recognize we're accountable to him. And this eternal plan of salvation, starting in verse 18, he's going to say he's our redeemer. And he sent his son to save us as a sinless substitute. And the fact that he would do that for sinful creatures like us, we're in awe of him for that. And so these things motivate us in this area of fear in God. Because you sometimes wonder, what camp should I be on? Should I be on the happy camp or the fearful camp? The theological happy camp that's just, I just bask in the grace and love of God. Or the fearing God camp that just never smiles, sort of the dark side. No, they both go together. The love of God and the fear of God go together. In fact, it's our love for God that motivates us to fear God, to respect God and to hold him in awe. That he is an awesome God. Jesus feared God, and he was sinless. Listen to this in Isaiah 11, verse 1 and 2. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. It's a prophecy about Christ. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, and strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Jesus sinless, and he feared God. So it really has nothing to do with the fact that we're sinners, Jesus was sinless, and he feared God. What's wrong wrong with our world today is they have no respect or fear of God. In fact, Romans 1 says that they do not fear God. They do not obey God. So, look at verse 17 with me, and let's talk about this idea that motivates us to fear God when we think about God as our Father. God is our Father, since or because. When you see the word if, It's uh, since or because. Because you address as father, 
Jesus instructed his followers when they pray to call Jesus our Father. Abba, intimate term, Daddy almost, in the Lord's Prayer. Romans 8.15 says, You do not receive the spirit of slavery, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Listen, we have access into the presence of God like a child does into the presence of his own father. We cry out, Abba, Father. We're no longer slaves, now we're sons, Galatians 4 says. And the point he's making, I believe, in this verse is we should not presume on that relationship. We should not think, okay, well, he's my father. I can do whatever I want to do. My father, for example, is a, is a police officer in town. And uh, I can do whatever I want because he will get me off. No. We don't presume on the fact that we have this relationship with God that now we can do whatever we want. And that's what he's saying here. We're to fear God. We're to fear God because he judges. He judges. He does not let us just go our own way if we belong to him. I'll explain that in just a moment, but the point is, he is one who is going to judge our works. We are accountable to him. We see that in verse 17. The one who impartially judges according to each one's work. He's speaking to believers here, understand, not to unbelievers. He's speaking to believers. Romans 2.11 says, there is no partiality with God. Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men, knowing that the, from the Lord you will receive the reward of, its, of an inheritance. It is the Lord Christ you serve. We're called to serve. We're called to good works. And we're accountable to God for that. Every believer will give an account one day. Where do I get that from? What, what, what's the do, where do I get this doctrine from? This doctrine about the fact that we will one day stand before Christ and give an account. Romans 14, 10 through 12. And you can write these verses down. I don't know if you have time to write down. I'm going to have a lot of verses this morning. But this is a good one. Romans 14, 10 through 12. He's speaking once again to believers. And he says this. But you... Why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us, verse 12, will give an account of himself to God. Understand something, there are two to talk, when we talk about judgment, we're talking about two things. We're talking about the great white throne judgment of the book of Revelation. We're talking about that time when all the unbelievers will stand before God in judgment. This we're talking about here is a, called the Bema Seat. It's called a place where uh, an athlete would go to be rewarded for what he had done and accomplished. This is not a throne of judgment in the sense it's a place where your sin will be dealt with. Sin will not be the issue at this throne. There will be no DVD of your life at this throne. There will be, no, there will be nothing at this judgment of God related to sin at all. Your sin has been dealt with already. The reason you are at this judgment is because 
your sin has been dealt with. If your sin had not been dealt with, you would be appearing one day before that great white throne judgment in the book of Revelation. But this is an event that will take place for believers. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. It says, therefore, verse 9 says, we will also have as our ambition, verse 9 says, whether at home or, excuse me, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Whether fruitful or not, it really isn't good or bad, it really means whether it's profitable or not. Because if you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Things are made, done with wood, hay, and stubble. It's the quality of one's work, quality of one's service to God. But the point I'm going to make and be very clear on is this judgment is not a time when you are, you are judged for your sin. That has already taken place in Christ. The only reason you would be appearing at this throne of judgment or this judgment seat is because your sin has been dealt with, because sin is not the issue here. Be very clear on that. It would be double jeopardy. It would be double jeopardy for you as a Christian to appear before Christ because of your sin. He already paid for it. And now you've got to pay for it? No, that's not how this works. That's not what the Bible teaches. Your sin has been dealt with in Christ. And for that reason, you will never be judged for your sin. There's no condemnation. There is now no condemnation. Right now, as a Christian, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 1. If you look at that passage in 1 Corinthians 3, just turn there, verse 11. You can mark all three of these down. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, talking about the church and for no man can lay a foundation, verse 11 says. Talk about building this house called the church. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if a man, any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. Fire will be the method of judgment, purifying to test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, it will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But notice, he himself will be saved yet as though through fire. So it's, we see this accountability. We see this accountability that we have an impartial judge. The one who we call a father, we're to fear because we have this accountability. So it's reward. It's a reward. That is the purpose of that judgment. This idea of being disciplined is also, I think, in mind here. Uh, believers aren't punished for their sin, but believers do get disciplined for their sin. If you belong to him, just like your father or mother would discipline you, God disciplines those who belong to him. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Well, excuse me, while you're in 1 Peter, which you're probably not, are you? 
If you were in 1 Peter, you would read this, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? He's saying in that verse, in that verse that judgment must begin with the house of God. In other words, God is doing things in his church to discipline his church all the time, to purify his church, to make his church more and more holy to make his church more and more glorifying to himself. God is always doing something in the church. You talk about the trials the church faces and all the things the church goes through. Those are God's disciplining of the church. He's constantly doing that. He, brings false te- he allows false teachers to exist to, for us to work through that and to go through that and to come on the other side of that further upholding truth. He allows even sinfulness to go on in the church at times so we can deal with that and bring greater glory to him. He allows all kinds of judgments to come, persecution, all of those things to come on the church, disciplining the church, purifying the church, all of the time that's going on. And he does that in the life of individual believers as well. Notice in Hebrews chapter 12, have you forgotten, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 5, have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Speaking to Christians, speaking to those who belong to him, to those who call him father. We all experience, if we belong to him, we all experience this discipline. None of us have arrived yet. None of us have, all of us have areas of weakness and sinfulness and, and things that need to be, need to be purged of. And that's what he's doing. For those whom the Lord loves, verse 6 says, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Sometimes it's very difficult trials. Sometimes it's very difficult. The word scourging is a, is a strong word and sometimes it's a painful experience that God will take a believer through. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Listen, I don't spank your kids. You don't spank somebody else's kids. You spank your own kids. You discipline your own kids. Because you love them. Because they belong to you. And you desire to see them mature. You desire to see them purged of childish behavior and sinful behavior. And that's the same way God works in us. It's a discipline. It's a, it's a judgment, basically. But it's a discipline. Verse 8, if you're without discipline, of which we all have become partakers, then you are Ill- illegitimate children, not sons. Listen, if you've never experienced the discipline of God, it's because you don't belong to him. Because if you belong to him, he will discipline you. He will purge you of your worldliness of your dependency on anything that's not him. He will knock things out from under you that you're depending and trusting in that are not him. He does that. He does that to me. He does that to you. Because he loves me. He loves you. We had earthly fathers, verse 9 says, to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? We feared our parent. We respected them. Because we knew they loved us and we knew they would discipline us. Verse 11 says, all 
excuse me, verse 10 says, notice, here's the purpose, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that what? We may share his holiness. You are not just going to get holy by some resolution, by pulling up your bootstraps and trying to improve yourself. Sometimes it just takes hard licks from God to break my heart and my dependency on other things. Sometimes I takes hard knocks to make me look to him instead of myself or to other things. Discipline doesn't seem joyful, the next verse says, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I fear God, fear God during your stay upon this earth because he is the, your impartial judge. He is the one who will discipline you. In the present and in the future, you will one day stand before him. Conduct yourself in fear. Sometimes this issue of church discipline uh, is a picture of that. Well, not sometimes, it always is. Church discipline, God has given the church a, a means by which to restore uh, a part of the body, a member of the body who, who strays. And he says in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, he gives instruction. He says, you go to that person privately when they're straying. And then if they won't listen to you, take another person or two, two more people with you maybe. And you go and you confront and you try to pull them back. Purpose is restoration. Purpose is going after that lost sheep. The purpose is to bring them back. If they still will not listen, then you tell it to the church. And you treat them as a Gentile, a tax collector, meaning an unbeliever. That's how the church carries out what heaven does. You speak on behalf of heaven, church, when you do that. That's the means by which Christ has given us to deal with these things. And you know what happens when we've done that? The times we've done that in this church, the times we have done that corporately in this church is everybody sits there with a holy hush. Oh, wow. It's like it comes over everybody. A holy hush. Wow. This is solemn. Wow, this is heavy. It goes along with what you read in 1 Timothy 5.20. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will also be fearful of sinning. (laughs) God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing in all our lives. Ananias and Sapphira learned a hard lesson, didn't they? They died. The first church discipline situation was the two people died for early church for lying, misleading. And then the word got around and then nobody wanted to go to that church. (laughs) They take it serious there. (laughs) They take it serious there. He says, I urge you later in Peter, 1 Peter, back to 1 Peter chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, this is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he says, 
Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. I'm tying that in with the last part of verse 17 of chapter 1, during the time of your stay on earth. We are sojourners. We are called out sojourners. We are called out exiles. We are called out uh, aliens in this world. And while we are in this world, God has our time on this earth, whatever that might be. And during the time of your stay on earth, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. One day you will stand before God to give an account. And so being a child of God should make us want to honor him. Fearing God should cause us to want to honor him as our gracious and merciful God. He's not an indifferent, negligent dad who doesn't care what we do. He does. He cares very much. Those whom are his, just like a, parent, a dad cares for his children's behavior, he cares very much what we do. We are not fooling him. We are not fooling him. He shows he loves us because he holds us accountable. The second thing Peter says, go to verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter 18, excuse me, 1 Peter 1 verse 18. Very significant passage, very significant passage on the doctrine of redemption. But this is also a motivation to fear God because you read this and you go, oh wow, what a plan that only a wise and holy God could ever come up with. What a plan that a holy God, a just God, and mercy at the same time could work together at the cross. You think about it, they kissed each other. Mercy and holiness, mercy and justice. God must uphold his holy justice. God must, and God is also a merciful God. Both attributes of God kissed each other at the cross. You find mercy, but you also find the justice and holiness of God held up. Notice it says in verse 18, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Redemption, he redeemed us. He redeemed us, that's the main word here, redeemed, it means to deliver someone from bondage. It means you're, you, you deliver them from bondage by paying a price for them. It's like the slave market. It's like uh, the, the prisoners who'd be taken in Peter's day. The Romans would take these prisoners and enslave them and to get them bought out of slavery, you would pay silver and gold to do that. You buy their freedom. That's redeeming. And what he has done, Jesus has done this for us. You were not redeemed. He, we've been redeemed. This is what he's teaching here. We have been redeemed. But thanks be to God, Romans 6 says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became a slave to righteousness. I'm a slave now. You were once a slave to sin. Now you're a slave again, but this time to righteousness. Ownership has been transferred, now Christ, you belong to Christ. Listen to Titus, excuse me, Romans 6, But now having been freed from sin, this is redemption, but having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, freed from sin, enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. 
Titus 3, listen to this. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived. This is that former life. This is that meaningless life. This is that uh, life we inherited from our forefathers, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But, but, but when the kindness of our God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. He redeemed us. He bought us out of that. He set us free from the enslavement of that. Very familiar concept to the millions of slaves during Peter's time, the thought of being redeemed out of slavery. In the Old Testament, Exodus 6, listen to this. You can write these down. I have so many verses in so little time. So many verses, but Exodus 6 Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments, and I will take you for my people. I will redeem you out of Egypt from that bondage, and I will make you my people, and I will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians." That's redemption. That's applied to us. God brought us out of that. We are a redeemed people. We are the fellowship of the redeemed. We're, we're redeemed from the burden of living a futile life, a life that is empty, a life that is per- without purpose, a life that is vanity, the vanities. A bunch of disconnected events going nowhere. That's what life apart from God is. I don't know where it's going. I was overwhelmed one time to hear Tom Brady give a, <laughs> give a talk and he talked about, I thought, most successful athlete around. And he just talked about how meaningless it all was. Because money can't buy happiness. Success in this world cannot buy happiness. All those things that you think would, the world thinks would, they can't. They don't. Not redeemed with perishable things. You see that in that verse, like silver and gold from your futile way of life. God rescued us. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Think about that. You gain the whole world and you lose your own soul. You got all the fun, luxury, luxurious things of life living on the Titanic. Right? The thing's going down. No matter what. No matter what, it's going down. And you can look happy and have a good time and eat all the food and all the things they do on that, on, on those thing, doing on that thing. But the point was it's going down. It's like the guy that built his barns and kept building them and building them and building them. Look at my barns. I'm going to build another one. In the eyes of the world, success. Nothing wrong with success. Nothing wrong with barns. Nothing wrong with money. Nothing wrong with any of that thing. But listen, if that becomes your idol, if that becomes your definition of fulfillment and success in life, you're on a sinking ship. Because what does that verse go on to say about the man building all the barns? This very night, your soul will be required of you. It doesn't matter. Now your kids get to fight over it all. And so before salvation, 
before we were redeemed, life was filled with empty pleasures, dead-end desires, nothing that would last. Isn't that the part of life that you hate the most? Nothing lasts. Oh, this, we had such a good time. Ooh, I wish I could freeze this moment for beyond the moment. Knowing that you were not set free with silver and gold because you weren't. That's the world's efforts to buy happiness and buy meaning. You weren't set free with that. You weren't set free with that because you could spend, you know, you could spend eternity in hell and you would never have done enough to pay for your own sin. You know that? You could spend eternity in hell. You would never still be able to satisfy the wrath of God for sin. Think about that. It, it would never be a thing like purgatory, what they come up with. That's enough years, now you're out. No, 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 no. Hell is forever. Sin is against a holy, infinite God. But see, God in his mercy, God in his mercy made a way to rescue us from sin, thus from death, thus from hell. He paid the infinite price, and it wasn't silver and gold. For even the Son of Man, Mark 10, 45 says this, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, a payment. Gave his life as a payment. A payment of redemption. A payment to set you free. He did not pay this ransom to the devil like some teach. This ransom was not to the devil. This ransom was paid to God. To uphold the holiness of God. To satisfy the wrath of God to satisfy the demands of God, to appease a holy God. That's what this ransom was paid to, not the devil. The devil does not have anything to do with this. He paid the ransom to God. God came up with the plan to purchase us. Acts 20, 28, listen to this verse. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. Ephesians 1, 7, we have redemption through his blood. Titus 2, 14, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. So, we're not redeemed through perishable things. Notice we're in verse 19, but with the precious blood, back in 1 Peter 1, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. When you see the blood of Christ, that's just a synonym for death. The wages of sin is death. He died. Blood was shed, meaning he died. Don't think of blood. Sometimes people think of the blood of Jesus because of the songs we sing. There's power in the blood and all of those things. Don't get confused and think there's something uh, mystical about blood, okay? This is a synonym for death. He had to die. Don't think it's, you get a vial of, we get a vial of Jesus' blood and somehow we've got the power to get us out of purgatory for 10,000 years. No, there's nothing mystical or supernatural in itself about blood. It's the fact that he died. He shed his blood for us and died and bled out, whatever you want to say. I could bleed and not die. 
but he died. Leviticus 17, 11 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement. That's what they did in the Old Testament. All of those animals were being put to death. They shed their blood. They were being put to death and they were a substitute for all the sinners in Israel. Those animals were treated as all the sins in, in the mind of God, the future for Christ, of course, but in the mind, in, in the, from God's perspective, that is how you were, your sins were dealt with by a substitute. And you shed the blood of that substitute. Exodus 12, 4 said you had to go find an unblemished lamb spotless. You see the foreshadowing going on here? And that's exactly what 1.18 says. He had to be an unblemished and spotless. That was Jesus. He had to be without sin. You see the foreshadowing from the Old Testament to the New? The lambs were a substitute. The lambs were spotless. It was their blood. They died. Christ was spotless. Christ was unblemished. Christ shed his blood. Christ died. The blood of Christ shed for us. John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God. Remember that? Hey, folks, quit looking at me. Look at him. He's the Lamb of God. He's the one that takes away the sin of the world. Not me. I'm just, I'm just a messenger. 1 Corinthians 5.7 says this, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ our Passover. Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. Passover was a picture foreshadowing of what Christ would do. The death angel would pass over your door. In the New Testament, because Christ were clothed in his righteousness because of his blood that was shed, because that blood's been applied to us in forgiving us of our sin and redeeming us, the death angel too will pass over us. Hebrews 9 says, Christ went into the heavenly tabernacle, not with the blood of animals, but with his own blood. It wasn't through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place. Revelation 5.12, worthy is the lamb that was slain. 1 Peter 2.24, you in 1 Peter? Flip over to 2.24, I love this verse. 2.24, Peter, Peter walked with the Lamb of God, if you think about it, and he's writing these words, but here he says in verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Just keep in mind that this is a sacrifice. We are talking about a sacrifice. A sacrifice on a cross that redeems us. And why did he redeem us? In 1 Peter, go back to chapter 1, verse 20. Why did he do all of this? Why? It was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. See verse 20? He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Foreknown, meaning in eternity past, God came up with the plan to redeem mankind through the sacrifice of Jesus. This is going to spin your heads, I know, but just think about this with me. Even before the fall, even before Adam and Eve sinned, this was a foreknown by God, slain before the foundation of the world plan. Why did it happen? Because God planned it. 
It was not an afterthought. It was not a thought by God to say, oh no, the perfect garden thing didn't work. I've got to come up with plan B. No, it was nothing like that. It was always the plan before the foundation of the world. It was no hasty remedy to rebellion in the garden, as one writer said. It wasn't an accident or twist of fate. It was part of God's eternal plan, and that's why Paul, Peter says in Acts chapter 2, you, you crucified him, you put him on the cross, but this was the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God that this would happen. Revelation 13, 8, during the tribulation period, they're going to be people who worship the beast, and they're going to be people who don't worship the beast. And here's what he says about the people who don't worship the beast, meaning believers. Everyone whose name has not been written in the found, from the foundation, <clears throat> excuse me, I said it totally backwards. Everyone who's going to be worshiping the beast will be worshiping the beast because their name was not written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Let me read this to you. Revelation 13, 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, meaning the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Foundation of the world, book of life, Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. He says in verse 20, it has appeared in these last times. You see in 120 of 1 Peter, appeared in these last times. Ever since the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ is referred to in the New Testament as the last times. We are living in the last times. We've been in the last time for 2,000 years. In these last times, it's called the fullness of time. God sent his son, Galatians 4 says. Hebrews 9.26 says, since the foundation of the world, excuse me, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he's been manifested to put away sin. He's been manifested at the right time, at the designated time, God sent Jesus into the world to redeem us. Notice, for the sake of you, chapter 1 of Peter, verse 20. For the sake of you. For the sake of you and for me, it wasn't some just, I don't know, impersonal event. He did it for my sake and your sake. Nails were put in his hands for my sake and your sake. His feet for my sake and your sake. He was beaten. He was spit upon. He was scourged. He was done. All that was done to him for me and for you. I have been crucified with Christ. Is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 Peter 1.21 Who through him are believers in God. There's no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. You know, I, I don't care how many religions you want to say there are in the world. There's only one religion like Christianity. All the other religions are what you must do to make yourself worthy to stand before God. Only Christianity says God did it. God did it for you. God did it. God accomplished your redemption. It's nothing you can do. God had to do it because there's nothing you could do. God had to do it because he's holy and he demands holy perfection and none of you can do that. And your works will never make you holy. And your religious activities will never make you holy. You're, all the incantations and all the 
All the religious stuff that people do will never make them holy enough to go into the presence of God. Only Christ can do that. He raised him from the dead, verse 21 says, because God put a stamp of approval on what Jesus did. Jesus was righteous. Jesus was holy. Jesus accomplished everything a holy life demands. Jesus accomplished everything a sinful man required, and that is death. He died. He died in our place. So that your faith and hope are in God. That's the goal of it all, folks, that our faith and our hope are in God and not in ourselves. So when you're tempted, Peter's saying when you're tempted to go back to your feudal life, remember, remember what he saved you from, the price he paid. You've been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6 says, therefore glorify God in your body. That's where Peter goes with all this stuff. He gives all these indicatives, all these statements of truth. Conduct yourself in fear. Fear God. Right of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, fear God. When all is said and done, fear God. Fear God. Father, I praise you this day. Thank you so much. God, may we be a congregation that fears God, honors and has an awe about God. That we're not flippant about God and his name and his word. That we don't just sing these songs and with familiarity and no meaning in our hearts, that we just say things about you because we've said it that way for a long time. May we worship you and praise you and honor you and adore you. May we fear you. We spend too much time fearing man. We spend too much time fearing things in the world. Not enough time fearing you. We're called to fear you during our sojourn on this earth. And that sojourn on this earth may be a difficult time, may be hard times. The command does not change. And we think about the things that Peter's told us about you in this passage. We are motivated to fear you. You're a father, you're our judge, impartial. You discipline us. And you redeemed us. And you're holy. Oh yeah, you're holy. May we strive to be holy as you are holy. In Jesus' name, amen.